1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Version Podcast. This is Erica and today I'm talking with Allison Primo. She is the founder of Sober Mom Tribe, a business dedicated to helping moms who wanna quit drinking do so with the community resources and support they need. After Allison became sober four years ago, she noticed there wasn't a lot out there specifically for moms and moms face some pretty unique struggles. So she created something just for us. Allison has a pretty harrowing personal story and she shares her rock bottom moments with me today in this interview. She is the single mom of a nine-year-old boy and now lives in freedom from alcohol and has so many great bits of wisdom to share, especially as we're all dealing with the new difficulties that living in quarantine bring to our lives. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Allison Primo. All right, Allison, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, I've been listening to your podcast, uh, Sober as a Mother, and so that's been a real encouragement to me, Um, but let's talk about you a little bit before we jump into questions. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your family, where you live, um, and all of those great details. Absolutely.
2: So I am 36 years old, I am a mother to my nine-year-old son, Ben, and we currently live in Connecticut on the shoreline. Um so we're getting ready for that beach weather hoping that this virus is gone by then mm-hmm. so we can en- and enjoy the sand and the ocean and all that good stuff. Um and I am also the founder of Sober
1: Mom Tribe um as well as the Sober Mom coach. And so give me a little bit of info about what is Sober Mom Tribe. Yep. So
2: Sober Mom Tribe was created in July of 2018. I was a guest on a Sober Girls Guide podcast, which is another great podcast. And we were talking about how difficult it is to find other mothers who are sober, Um, specifically mothers who are in the age range of, you know, 30s to 40s. I had been trying out AA meetings and I just, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I fit in because a lot of the people were way older than me. Um, So I felt like I couldn't relate. And yes, you know, their wisdom is amazing. But at the same time, you want to be able to connect with others who are at a similar point in their journey as you. And you can just go grab a cup of coffee and just chat. So it got my, it got the wheels turning and I was like, I want to create a space for mothers to connect and to see that they aren't alone. Because I think that's the biggest barrier as a mom. I think there's an even, there's more of a stigma. I think you have more shame involved in it, more guilt. Um, so, so having a space where other mothers can, you know, vent, uh, on their struggles or successes, but also having a space where they can see others milestones and see that there is hope, you know, we've, there's all varying degrees of sobriety. Um, you know, I believe the, the spectrum of addiction and, you know, you could be sober curious too. And we're all coming together to really provide hope to the women who are struggling and also to provide um, a resource to say that you don't have to, there is no quote unquote rock bottom. You know, if you're drinking and it's negatively affecting your life and you're waking up with anxiety, you're waking up with regret, then that's, you know, that alone is enough to want to get rid of alcohol from your life.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like I've heard people say if you're asking yourself if you have a problem with alcohol, then you probably do. And Right, right. And that's enough to and, and wanting to quit even if nothing horrific has happened is enough to quit. I mean, that's all it takes and Uh, So I think that's a really good point. Now, I want to talk more about Sober Mom Tribe in a little bit, but first I would love to get some of your personal story. And I know that you've told this a lot and I've heard it, but for our listeners, um, talk about your history with alcohol and how did you get to a point where it went from being something that was just normal, because it is normal in, in this culture, to something where it was a big problem for you?
2: Right. So, you know, I was the quote unquote, normal drinker in college. I know, you know, looking back now, I believe that obviously binge drinking is not quote unquote normal, but that's what I did during college and after college. And uh, before I had my son, I, um, after I graduated college, I moved to Rhode Island and, Uh, right after that, about a year after I started a job there, the that's when the market crashed, and I got laid off. So during that time, I was drinking more nightly, I wasn't drinking really during the day, but I was laying by the pool on the weekends and drinking during the day, you know, during that time. Um, But I didn't really there wasn't, I wasn't waking up with severe anxiety, I wasn't going through withdrawal at that time. And then I got pregnant with my son. And after I had him, um, I didn't really think about drinking, I didn't drink during my pregnancy. I was so busy and tired and overwhelmed with single motherhood because my son's father has never been in the picture. Um, so I was just super overwhelmed and tired that I wasn't really thinking about it at that time. So between when he was born and a year old, nothing really, I, I I wasn't drinking heavily for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and then, you know, towards a year, I started to, you know, drink more at night, um, you know, really justifying that nightly glass of wine habit. Um, And that happened for a couple years. And then my grandparents both died within a nine month span And my grandparents pretty much raised me. They were always there for me. They, In the summers, they took me to like all over the state of Connecticut to restaurants and apple picking and strawberry picking and all that good stuff. And when they both died, I just, I was using alcohol to cope with that because I didn't know any other way. Um, I was so sad and upset and i didn't know how to process that without alcohol so that happened and then my boyfriend of 3 years broke up with me so it was just a combination of really traumatic events that led me to begin drinking more and i started drinking more heavily it went from you know one glass of wine or two glasses of wine two glasses of wine a night to a bottle of wine a night And it got to a point where I knew I had to do something else. Um, I knew I had to stop because it just wasn't feeling good anymore. So I was in therapy at the time and I had told my therapist, you know, that I was drinking a little bit more. I didn't even tell her the extent of what, how much I was drinking. And, you know, I left that appointment feeling pretty good because I had actually got it, got it off my chest. And a couple hours later, she calls me and says that it's her duty that she has to call child, child protective services. And I just started freaking
1: out. Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. I can't even imagine that.
2: Yeah. So I was like hysterically crying. I just did not know what to do. Like he's my world. He's my reason for living. So I was just going through like the worst case scenarios in my head. So we ended up, you know, packing up a few clothes and I went to a hotel that night because I didn't know if somebody was going to come to the house or what was going to happen. Um, you know, me worst case, I, you know, I suffer with anxiety. So worst case scenario just always went in my head. So then, you know, we stayed in the hotel in Rhode Island for a night and then I went to my mom's in Connecticut for a week to stop drinking. And at that, that first time I tried to get sober was pretty easy. Um, I didn't really have any withdrawals. I had a little bit of anxiety, but other than that, I I was fine.
1: Um, and so did this, uh, CPS ever come?
2: They didn't, which is, I, I'm so frustrated with the mental health system. Um, you know, I know all therapists aren't like that. And I know that you know, they do have a duty to report certain things, but it wasn't, I felt that my child wasn't in danger. Um, and it just made me feel, I didn't, now I wasn't trusting anybody.
1: Yeah. That, that seems like it would really, that contributes to people keeping it a secret. I mean, right. how are you supposed to that's deal like, with it if you can't be honest in therapy about it? That seems right. crazy. I, I hope that's not, I mean, from my understanding, that's not all that common. So it's, it's really awful that you had to have that experience.
2: Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately too, like I'll continue on with my story, that didn't make me stop. Um, you know, I went back, to, I didn't drink for like three weeks or so, three weeks to a month. And then I went back to drinking again, not like heavily at first. It starts out, you know, the one glass of wine here and there. And then, you know, you're starting to drink on the weekends again and during the week and, you know, how that story goes. Mm -hmm. So about a year later, I tried to get sober again. I took a leave of absence from my job. I was a senior sales development specialist for a corporate wellness company. And I took a leave of absence for a few months. And I went home for a week to, you know, really try and detox. And I didn't want to be alone, obviously, because alcohol withdrawal can be deadly. Um, So I went to my mom's for a week. And that time I actually did go to the hospital overnight just to be um, checked out and my vitals monitored overnight. And then after that the the team of doctors or the doctor there had uh recommended an anxiety program at Butler Hospital in Rhode Island and what that was was an intensive program five to seven days nine to five you're there pretty much all day long just talking and learning different tools for anxiety um And then, sadly, after I completed that program, I drove to the liquor store right after and got a bottle of wine to celebrate. Like, how crazy is that?
1: What were you thinking at that time? Were you thinking, like, this is fine. Like, I did it. Like, I proved to myself, like, I can stop. And so I'm just going to have this as a celebration of that?
2: Yep, pretty much. And it's so crazy to me that nobody – that the doctors had not said that alcohol increases anxiety. I really had no idea that was the case until I stopped completely until I stopped drinking completely. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that should be like the forefront of when you go to the doctors for anxiety. Like that should be their first question Yeah, Um, because I I didn't know. And here I was trying to, cure my anxiety with alcohol, not knowing it was making everything like a 100 times worse.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like that's not not asked simply because, as I want to get into in a little bit, like, it's such an accepted part of culture and society. And you're not even allowed to question, you know, whether or not someone has an issue with it. So yeah, I totally agree with you there. Um, And so after that, you got your wine at the store. And then what (laughs) happened? And then
2: it was just, you know, sort of the same as the previous time trying to moderate and having, you know, a couple glasses here and there. And then it really just, they say every time gets worse. Mm -hmm. Every time, I don't really like the word relapse, but we'll use it in in this case. Um, Every time you relapse, it gets, the the next time gets worse. And it truly is the case. Um, You know, this time I... Really started to spiral more quickly, and I was starting to take shots of vodka before work um, and driving forty five minutes to work and then getting to work and maybe having some wine in my coffee cup and then going out at lunchtime to get more wine or nips or you know anything to hold me over until I was done with work and then I'd leave work, stop at the liquor store again, drive 45 minutes, pick up my son and then go home and drink. And the cycle would just be, it would start all over again.
1: And I know you've said that people from your work didn't even know, like nobody necessarily even knew that you were drinking during the day. Right. Right. And that's totally shocking to me.
2: Like, honestly, when I had posted on my year, sobriety anniversary on Facebook that people had no idea the extent of how much I was drinking, I was absolutely blown away. Um, And that just goes to show you that people can really hide it well. Mm -hmm. Um, And not even on purpose. Like I thought I was, you know, sometimes I thought I was slurring my words a little bit or not as sharp, but apparently not, you know, apparently I was you know, just fine. Well, until it got to the point where I wasn't producing the the, the numbers I should be. Um, and then it started to become a problem. And then I got let go. And that's when it really just, you know, I was drinking morning until night. It was the summertime. And my, I didn't have to bring my son to school. Um, and all this time, I'm so fearful. Like, I want help so bad but I'm scared that somebody is going to take my son away. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, it's, it's so hard because you want, you really want to get better, but you're scared of, of that potential of somebody taking him away. So I finally just said, I can't do this anymore. Um, It was, I felt like I was going crazy. You know, I was waking up at 2am in the morning, having some wine, falling back to sleep, waking up again at 7am, you know, drinking throughout the whole day. It was just a nightmare. Um, I wasn't even really sleeping. I was just taking naps and I just couldn't do it anymore. My body couldn't do it anymore. My mind couldn't do it anymore. So I woke up on November 14th, 2016 and I called my mother at 6am and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I need actual help. Um, And, you know, at the time she thought nobody knew the extent of how much I was drinking. So she thought we'd do the same thing again or I'd just go to her house for a week and, you know, go through it on my own. But I knew this time I needed to actually go to a place to detox because I had been drinking so much. Um, And I did, you know, my sister came to Rhode Island and picked me up and drove me to the detox facility, and I was there for five days. It was absolute hell, um, and it really puts everything into perspective, and really makes you see that alcohol, yes, it's marketed as you know it's not harmful, but it really, really is, you know, when it's one of two substances that you can die from in withdrawal, you know, that's that's really eye opening.
1: And so what, tell me, what was it like in, in detox? Like what were the physical things that you went through? Yeah. So
2: the first, the first day or first night, um, it was absolute torture because my mind, like I was drinking to get rid of the racing thoughts. And since I didn't have the alcohol to try and like numb that, I had to deal with it. Plus, I, it was very hard to fall asleep. So then they give you a little bit, they give you medicine to really help you through the withdrawal. Um, you know, the anxiety, non addictive anxiety, medicine, and then a sleep aid. And I forget what else, but they really just, you know, they check on you every four, four hours to take your vitals and make sure you're okay. And I really don't remember a lot of it because I slept mostly for the five days. I, you know, they said that you you should be going to meetings and going to the cafeteria to get meals. But I didn't, I didn't do any of that. Um, I just pretty much slept. People came to bring me my meals and, um, yeah, you know, I didn't go to any AA meetings. Well, I did. I tried the first night. Um, I tried one and I was, in, I sat there for 15 minutes and I just couldn't concentrate or just think about anything. So I just got up and went to the room. Um, but yeah, you know, I pretty much just slept because I hadn't been sleeping. So it was my body's way of trying to catch up and start the healing process. So you were there for five days and then you went home i did you know they had recommended in inpatient treatment for 30 days but if this was around thanksgiving and christmas so i really didn't want to be away from my son any longer it was hard enough as it was so i left there or my my mom came to pick me up and i you know spent some time at my mom's and then my son and i we would go between Connecticut and Rhode Island. So when I was in detox, my mom had registered him for the Connecticut school system. So we were living in Connecticut for five days. And then on Friday night or Saturday morning, we would drive back to to Rhode Island at our place in Rhode Island and be there for a few days. And we did that for a year. Um, So, you know, I also believe that was good because it led me to get out of my normal environment. And I wasn't in the same place where I was, you know, continuously drinking. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. I'm reading this. I'm reading um, Atomic Habits. Have you read it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm reading that. And he he talks about just like how getting out of environment is so important for like breaking even just like minor habits. And so yeah. that seems like would be really important in this case. Yes. Yeah. And oh, mm-hmm.
2: also my therapist. She was so when I when I left Detox, they had said that they were gonna have a child protective services or a social worker come to my mom's house to look at the house and just make sure my son was in a safe environment and things like that. Um so the social worker came out about a week after I got out of detox and recommended a therapist in the area. And she has definitely been a godsend and has been my rock and huge, you know, that's like my, the biggest tool in my sobriety toolbox has been my therapist. Um, and I've seen her since, you know, day 10 of sobriety or something and like that.
1: And you still see her now? I do, yeah. Not as often, but... Yeah. So what's some... I mean, I guess what's your thought process? It's you were there five days, you went home, you kind of started your new way of life. But to me, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, just that thought of I I can never drink alcohol again or I will never drink alcohol again, that just seems like an impossible thought. And so... I guess, how do you battle that kind of, that entering your brain to make you feel defeated? So,
2: you know, I think that having this quote unquote rock bottom of detox really made me see that I can't drink again. Um, That, you know, if I was to drink again, I fear that I would die. And I don't want to go down that path again. So I think detox really scared me straight, so to speak. Um, you know, I think it was what I needed to see that, okay, like Allison, you can't moderate, like it's just not going to work. Um, you know, but for for others, that forever daunting word, especially if you, you haven't had, you know, detox or you haven't had a DUI or things like that, um, the forever word is definitely daunting. So it's really, I don't know. I know it's so cliche, but it's really just not drinking for the 24 hours that you have in a day and just getting by one day to the next. And one day you look back and you're like, wow, like I have three months under my belt or I have six months under my belt. Um, and that's the the confidence and momentum that you need to keep moving forward to eventually say, you know what, I don't want to drink again. Like alcohol didn't add anything to my life. So why would I want to reintroduce that back?
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
1: And so what were your, um, I guess, daily... You mentioned your therapist and stuff, but like, were yeah. there other things that you were doing just to protect yourself and to stay strong. Yep. So
2: I was reading a lot. Um, my first book that I read out of detox was the Elizabeth Vargas book between Mm -hmm. breath. Mm -hmm. And it really spoke to me because she was drinking for the same reason, like anxiety, like most of us are. Um, and I really could connect with her. So I definitely, um, recommend that book if you're struggling with anxiety and alcohol um you know so I was reading and I was also exercising and I wasn't I feel like the first year I wasn't using a lot of tools like I think my therapist I was going to her every week so she was like that top tool um and then books and also podcasts were big for me too back then um, it still are to this day.
1: Yeah. Books are, I think I have like almost all of the, uh, sobriety memoirs on my bookshelf right now. Cause that's been kind of, uh, my thing in this year is just like, as long as I'm reading one of those, it helps, uh, it, it helps does. to say no. Um, and actually I think I'm like done with them now and I need to find some new ones. <laughs> actually, I don't think <laughs> I've read, I don't think I've read the Elizabeth Vargas one though. So I will pick that one up. Um, But it's interesting because, you know, those books have all kinds of people, people that are, you know, hit rock bottom like you, but then other people that didn't hit rock bottom, but just felt that it was a problem in their life. And like, it felt like it was too hard to quit, but then they did. And here's how they did it. And so I think it's great that it, it covers the spectrum and you can always find yourself somewhere within there. Like you talked about, like it is a spectrum. So that's really interesting. Um, now, did you ever have a moment, I think I heard you say somewhere at some point that you had a moment of being really tempted, like you had gone to meet someone in a bar and you got really tempted to order beer or something. Have you had those moments? Yes. So that was actually,
2: so it was in August of 2017. So I had been around nine, nine months sober. Um, and I took my son on a vacation to Storyland in New Hampshire and there was this really great restaurant, but it was also like, a, it was more of like a brewery. Um, and I was just like, screw it. Like I want to go there because I have really good food. Like I don't want to drink, but then I go in there and this was like pretty much like the first time I've been around like, like alcohol like that, like just constantly in your face. Um, so I was very, very tempted then to just order a beer. I was like, oh, I'll just get one. And then I'm, and then I played the tape forward and said, Allison, it's not going to, it's not going to be just one. And I'm super stubborn. So I didn't want to reset my sobriety calculator either. Yeah. So that's definitely something else that holds me accountable is, you know, those days.
1: Um, can you talk about that a little bit playing the tape forward? Because I know that's been, helpful for me, um, just in that, when I think about, you know, I'm one of those people that d- hasn't had a rock bottom moment, but it's just something I've always wanted to stop doing. But it really produces, like drinking for me is very, like you mentioned, anxiety inducing, but also it really can make me depressed. Um, mm-hmm. Even just hours later, it can make me feel depressed. And so mm-hmm. talk about the idea of ch- of playing the tape forward.
2: So it's really just looking at the next day or looking at if you're a type of person who you drink and then you're waking up at 3 a.m. riddled with anxiety, thinking about that moment, thinking about like that one drink, is that worth what you're gonna feel, you know, in the middle of the night or the next day? Um, is it worth the you know, the time that you're going to not be able to work out or not spend with your kids because you're hungover, is it worth it? No.
1: In the yeah, because one drink is enough. not usually one drink.
2: Right, exactly. Um, you know, and I think if you have struggled with alcohol, I don't believe that you would be even thinking about it. You know, quote unquote, normal people just go about their daily life, not thinking about alcohol and not thinking about like, Oh, should I have a drink tonight? Or should I you know, they don't think about it like we do like I do. Um, So yeah, uh, you know, I think really playing the tape forward helps tremendously. It helps a lot of us to get out of just that present, you know, trying to get that quick fix. And looking at you know, the potential that will happen in, you know, four hours or six hours.
1: Yeah. Well, and you, so we were talking about mom specifically and your mom and I'm mom and lots of people are. And so we have like very sort of specific uh, struggles that not everyone else has necessarily. And of course, one of the big conversations is mommy wine culture. And I feel like I've seen a lot more pushback on that in the past few years than there ever was before. Mm-hmm. Um you know, how do you, do you see that being kind of not as widespread now or, or is it still a huge problem?
2: I believe it's still a huge problem. Um, you know, in the past, you know, a couple of weeks since we've had this virus going on, I believe the mommy wine memes have been, you know, really have increased. Yeah. And, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. And I think, you know, I, in the first year of my sobriety, I was definitely more resentful, um, and a little bit more angry at the people who could just have a glass of wine here and there. Um, but as I moved through the second year of sobriety and beyond, you know, it doesn't really trigger me as much anymore, um, I just kind of live and let live. I can't control other people's what other people post, but I think education is the key and I think, you know, showing how an alcohol-free life is not only better for yourself but for your kids, I think that's how the change occurs. We can't force anybody to change.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like I am never going to say anything to anyone about it, you know, but when I do right. see those memes, it really, it really does bother me, even though I know a lot of people that post those, maybe they don't have any kind of issue and mm-hmm. it is just all in fun and that's fine. But the problem is that we don't, we don't know who is struggling. And so normalizing it, making it be like, oh, and and then you go in your head. Cause I know, cause I've done this many times. Well, I've had a long day or like I cannot get through this afternoon like with these little people like without a glass of wine. And that's okay because I'm supposed to take care of myself and do what I need. Um, and you start justifying it. And then for people that do have an issue, it makes it so much harder to get a handle on it and be able to stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, speaking of the virus, I've been really concerned with people right now, just concerned for people that are newly sober or, um, you know, want to get sober. I mean, you know, it's like when someone first, you know, really has an issue, they're told like 90 meetings in 90 days type of stuff. And there's never been, as far as I know, there's never been a time in our history when AA has been shut down. Uh, and you know, I mean, it's obviously available online right now, but what are you saying to people that you're talking to that are, kind of struggling through this time? How are you guiding people to get through it? Yep. I, you know, I
2: there's so many free online meetings now. I am, you know, so grateful for all the people in the sober and recovery community who are really stepping up to the plate and offering these free resources. Um, you know, to name a few, Carly Benson, she has virtual virtual gatherings, I know she recovers, has Zoom meetings every day. Uh, Laura McCowan has meetings, you know, a couple times a week. So I've been telling them to take advantage of those. Like if you're a person who needs that daily interaction, then you know you can get it through the, the Zoom meetings. Understand that, you know, physical you know, that physical connection is necessary too. But right now we just kind of have to really take advantage of what we do have and not think about what we don't have. Um, So yeah, I've been telling, you know, lots of women to get on those free calls. And also I think my biggest tip so far has really been saying to give yourself grace and try not to compare your parenting style right now or what you're going through right now with somebody else's curated content on their social media feed. Um, you know, we're all really just trying to get by and what works for somebody may not work for you and don't feel pressured to have this whole, your whole day structured. I mean, mm-hmm. if that's like, if that's what you want to do and that's what you'd like to do, then go ahead and do it. But if you're a type of person who is feeling like you're, you're falling behind or you're a bad parent because you're not making homemade bread or you're not doing scavenger hunts or whatever the case may be, don't, don't feel like that. You know, we're all just trying to get by and you're doing the best that you can right now.
1: Um, Oh, I just lost my train of thought. (laughs) I had another question. (laughs) Um, so, Oh yeah, this is what I was going to say. Um, what what do you say to people? I mean, because there's a lot of um, – there can be controversy over how you count your days or, you know, you know people feel really bad if they go you know, three months and then they mess up and they feel like they have to start over. Like what is your um, approach to when somebody messes up so that they don't sabotage themselves and just go completely right. back to their old way? Because, you know, I've heard um, like Annie Grace, I think, uh, say – you know, okay, so this person that wrote her like went like a year and then they drank and she's like, okay, so like less than 1% of the time you messed up, you know? Right, So how do you guide people there? So it's always,
2: my thing is, it's always a lesson, you know, if you had three months sober and you had a slip up, you know, you didn't lose those three months because you still have what you learned. Um, And I understand it can be defeating, you know, sometimes it can be mentally challenging. um, But as, as long as you look at it as a lesson, and, you know, look at it, okay, like you said, you know, you stayed sober, more, more sober, you you had more sober days than you did drinking days. That's what matters. You know, it's really a journey. And I, I do believe for those of us that don't have that rock bottom, um, that it's more about the lessons and it's more about picking yourself back up when you do have a slip up. You know, don't use that slip up to go into, you know, weeks or months, you know, really just leave it at that. You know, you slipped up that night or you slipped up that day. And then you get yourself back up the next morning and try again. That's all we can do is just keep trying to see what fits and what works.
1: Yeah. And something else that just popped into my head, just something I want to share with people is I've heard people, I don't remember where I heard this, but I I will just credit it to someone else. Um, But (laughs) just this quote that, you know, you hear people say, um, is my life so bad that I really need to quit alcohol? And then turn the question around, like, is your life so good that you don't, you know? Right, and how right. could it be better? Like, are you your best self? Um, and if not, like, would giving up alcohol make you that person? And so um, there's just so many, like, profound ways to think about it. Um, so mm-hmm. for you personally, looking back, so you're at four, over four years or about four <laughs> years now, what's, is your, I mean, what is your life like now? Um, you know, why, you know, what would you have said to that person back then, um, about what life would be like now?
2: I honestly, I am, you know, every day that I wake up, I am so grateful, um, that I have turned my life around and I did not think that I'd be in the place that I am today. Um, You know, I lack patience, a lot of people who struggle with substance abuse, lack that patience, or even just in this modern world, we want that quick fix. And, you know, my therapist said it takes one to two years to really physically and mentally heal. And that's, you know, obviously, that's because of, you know, how long I drank, how much I, I, I drank. So it really does take time and you have to give yourself that time to truly heal and not think that there is a quick fix because there isn't. You have to stay consistent. Um, And it's because of a science perspective too. You have to build those new habits, those new neural pathways. Um, So really having that patience and not... You know, really just not giving up and, you know, things are going to get thrown at you. It, just because you get sober doesn't mean that your problems are going to go away. You're actually have, going to have to deal with them now. And that's the hard part. Um, you know, having to repair my credit, having to move out of my condo in Rhode Island and live with my mom for a little bit before I got the condo that I'm in now. Um, was an adjustment. And, you know, having to do things like that, to get to a better place later. Um, so yeah,
1: so now you've got sober mom tribe. Now, what are your goals with that um, in the coming years or the coming period of time?
2: My goal for that is really just to keep inspiring to keep posting and to reach as many moms out there who are struggling and who feel like they're alone to let them know that they aren't alone and to give them that hope that we need. Um, you know, we need support. That is the thing that is going to get you through and to get you to
1: long term sobriety and go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so to talk about some of the things that you offer.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, a certified recovery slash life coach. And I have, you know, one on one coaching options, I have 30 day alcohol free challenges and 60 day alcohol free challenges. And I actually just finished up a 90 day alcohol free challenge that started January 1st, And The, uh, I can't even, like, it warms my heart so much to see the connections that are made in these groups. Um, These groups are kept small for a reason, maximum of 20, um, so that these women can form deeper connections, so that they can take these friendships well beyond the challenges. Um, because that's, that's what we do. Like I said, we need that support. Um, so when they are struggling and it's not during the challenge, they can reach out to, you know, the, the other, the other mom that they met through it, through that challenge.
1: Yeah. Um, and what are, I guess, what's been some of the, what's kind of success stories have you seen or what can you share about some of the people you've worked with?
2: So you know, I work with varying degrees of, of mothers who are who are binge drinkers who just drank on a Saturday. That I've also worked with mothers who drink who drink daily. Um, success stories for sure. Um, you know, there have been so many mothers who haven't been able to string more than a couple days together. Who are now six months sober, eight months sober, a year sober. Um, there have been mothers who were sober for five years and then they, you know, then they became a parent and they relapsed. um, and through the program, they've gotten back on track and have become consistent again. And, you know, my biggest thing and my, my goal is to always get, pick somebody back up the next day not let them go into that negative self-talk spirals that makes them want to drink even more. Um, and that's what coaching does.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Allison. well, we've got just got a couple end of the podcast questions. Um, I knew you mentioned one book already, the Elizabeth Vargas book, but are, have you read any other books recently or listened to any podcasts that you could recommend? Yes, uh,
2: definitely. Um, My top fave of the year so far for books has been We Are the Luckiest by Laura McGowan. Um, You know, she is such a beautiful writer. She has definitely, you know, really provided so much hope to so many other mothers, too. Um, And that's the other thing. I like that she's a mom. There's not a lot of mom presence in these books, I feel like, the the Mm -hmm. memoirs, um, but she is a mom.
1: You're right. There is a lot of like single people in that write the memoirs for, or for whatever reason, I don't know what that, why that is. So I I agree. I have that book sitting on my bookshelf and I have read it and, and, it is really, really good. And I love Laura as well. Um, do you listen to any other podcasts? Uh, the
2: mindset mentor, it's not
1: a sobriety related podcast, but it's by
2: Rob dial and it's, you know, 16 minutes, super short, but super powerful. um, messages that he brings to the table, you know, every other day. Um, so and his his father actually died from alcoholism. So he does mm. have that alcohol connection as well.
1: Okay. And if you could have dinner or coffee with one person, who would it be and why? Right now, I would definitely want to have
2: coffee with Gabby mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's had her own a recovery story, and she's such a calming presence, and such a presence that we need right now in this time. Um, so yes, I would definitely want to have coffee with her.
1: Okay, you're totally convincing me to check her out because I know you've mentioned her before, and I'm not really familiar with her. So I'm gonna go um, go to her website today and see yeah, what she's, she's got great. to say. <laughs> yeah, yes. <yeah. laughs> All right, Allison. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It was really great to hear your story and I will link up everything that you've mentioned today make sure people are connected with your resources.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.